We're going to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, and with the different missionary speakers that we've had over the last couple of weeks, I want to remind you what we have been dealing with in our sermon series, the thrill of hope, this idea that ultimately we can have hope in what is coming for the year that lies ahead because of who Christ is and who we are in him. So often the world will say, uh, there, there goes those Christians, they're just this blindly optimistic crowd of people. They, they kind of use religion as a crutch. They, they have it as their uh, sort of feel-good drug to bury their heads in their sand and they'll just say, it'll all work out because, you know, God. And if I'm being completely honest, I think some of them might be right. I think there are plenty of people who claim to be Christians and they haven't really got a solid hope that is rooted in anything solid. They do just kind of hope that if they come to church, things will work out. They hope that if they pray for five minutes every day, that everything will be come through for them. But in the series, I want to show you that because of who our Savior is, we can root and anchor our hope in Him. This is not blind optimism. This is confidence in God and the thrill of knowing Him. Even if we don't know the road that He's taking us down, we don't know where that's going to lead, we know who is taking us. And that's far more important. I don't want to keep recapping, and, and uh, we could spend our whole time this morning recapping. So check out the podcasts online and follow the progression. What we've been doing is we've been taking snapshots of the life of Christ over the last month. And so uh, there's a progression that has been taking place. Uh, and we've been asking just all the while, well, what kind of a savior is Jesus? And we have been looking at hope that God will show up, speak up, hold us up when we need him the most. Uh, then last Sunday, we added this one. He's one who gave himself up for us. This morning, we're going to look at how we can grow up in Christ. And tonight, just to give you a fair warning, tonight we're going to finish the series with one, a God who is going to call us up. We're going to look at the Lord's return. Okay, so, right? Everyone kind of goes, oh, oh what, what was, where's he going with this? So look, Fair warning, just in case you think that tonight is going to be a lecture on premillennialism or postmillennialism or amillennialism or any of those millennialisms, you're going to be very disappointed, okay? We're not going to go near that tonight. We're going to deal with Scripture, and we're going to deal with uh, the hope that we have in that. So just that, that's where we're going tonight. But last Sunday, we, we, we kind of gave ourselves this, this framework of the crucifixion. And my one goal that I failed in miserably was to try and express to you the manner of love that God has for us. And as hard as I tried, as much effort and energy I put into it, no words can describe the love that God has for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is indescribable. Okay, so it's not that he loves some future version of you that, that, you know, that has it all sorted out, that you have all the little quirks kind of ironed out, you have all the little bits, uh, the kinks worked out, you have all the wee bits, kind of all, the ducks are all in a row, and you know even some Hebrew and some Greek, and you're, and you're really flying. No, no. God loves you right now as you are. In fact, even while we were still sinners, we were loved. And so the, the, this idea that 
now as a believer, he would look at our lives and think, well, I, I actually regret paying the price to redeem them. I regret sending Jesus to, to, if that was what they were going to do with it. That's a nonsense. Yes, we are more sinful than you think you are. But praise God, we are more loved than you could ever imagine. And the earth-shattering, mind-blowing reality is that it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about him, about who he is and how much we mean to him. Now, this is a message that changes people. It's not about works that we should boast, but the grace of God that has been freely given to us with the glory goes to him. This is about him and who he is and what he is doing. And that's part of the reason why we can have so much hope. Now, my thoughts this morning then follow on from that because as a direct result of that relationship with God, of, of living in the fullness of that loving relationship with God that we can have with our Heavenly Father, we grow to be more like Him. We grow in, into His likeness. I think there are too many churches filled with people who reach a point in their Christian life where they just become content. They kind of plateau. They're, they get saved early doors and they get excited. They want to learn more and says, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about this. I, I, I need to read. I need to study. I need to learn. And, and they're excited about it. And then there comes a point where they feel, I've kind of reached a sweet spot. I kind of feel like I know enough. I could carry myself in a conversation in, in kind of most areas. So I don't really need to push myself more. I'm kind of in a steady relationship. And it can happen maybe after 10 years of being saved or 20 years or 40 years. And there's no real desire to keep growing in the Lord. You, you, now, you're happy to keep knowing the Lord. You enjoy knowing the Lord. You enjoy being saved. But you're not all that interested in pushing yourself into growing more. Psalm 92 says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. It's a great picture, I think, flourishing in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of God. They will still bear fruit in the old age. They will stay fresh and green. I think that's the goal. For, for me, that's the goal. To, to not only uh, be still bearing fruit as I get older, but to be bearing more fruit, to be bearing better fruit, to be more fruitful. That has to be the goal. I don't want to reach a point where it says, okay, I think I'm, I'm fruitful enough. But to always strive for more. In the week of prayer, I was banging the same drum over and over and over and over and over again that we're not interested uh, as a church about growing. As, as a leadership, we've never sat down and says, okay, how do we get more people in? How can we get more bums on seats? We're not interested in that as, as a leadership. As a leadership, the conversation has always been about how can we become more healthy as a church? How can we have a healthier ministry? How can we have a healthier mission? Because we believe that, that health is far more important. But by default, healthy things will grow. A healthy child will grow. But the focus has to be on health above growth. Now, praise God, our church is getting bigger. And if you are one of those who've joined us over the last year or so, you're more than welcome and we are excited that you're here. 
But this morning, I want to just pause and double back and make sure, are we still focused on health? Or are we going to risk looking around and saying, hey, we're big. We don't need to try as hard. We're healthy enough. We've grown enough. It's a very dangerous place to be as a church. Because we need to make sure that we are always growing because growing up implies maturity, that we are maturing. Uh, I know believers who are saved a handful of years and they're far more mature in the things of God than people who've been saved a decade or two decades or three decades. This is about growing up in God. The gospel cannot leave people unchanged. Walking with the Lord demands progress as we walk. And the question is, how can we assess our progress? How can we hope that as we go through this year, we can progress? Because it would be a terrible thing. It would be a very hopeless thing to say, you know what, this is where we are and there's nothing we can do about it. But I think it's very exciting that if you feel that you've been in a rut spiritually, if you feel that things haven't really been changing for you, things haven't really been growing for you, that there is hope that things can change and that this year God could do something amazing in your life and through you. That's exciting. That's something to, to be thrilled about. Now, I'm paraphrasing Philippians 3 here. So this is the the Kennedy International Version here. I haven't made it yet. But this one thing I do, I'm pushing forward to the things of God and I'm leaving the useless stuff behind me because I want to grab hold of the prize of the high calling of God in my life. And so those of you who are perfect, those of you who are mature, those of you who are growing up in the things of God, copy me in this. And if you don't think like me, then I hope God changes your mind. Again, that's my paraphrase, okay? That's not exactly the Greek there, okay? Or let me read Ephesians 3. Paul says, Oh, that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wouldn't it be a glorious thing? Wouldn't it be an incredible, incredible thing if every single member of our church was filled with all the fullness of God? I think that would be an amazing thing. What a thing to hope for. Wouldn't that make for a healthier church? Wouldn't that make for a more powerful church? Wouldn't that make for a more God-exalting, effective church? That's Ephesians 3. And then Ephesians 4 goes on to speak of the new life that we have in Christ as believers, the new character that comes. And it finishes by saying we should forgive those as we have been forgiven by God. That should be the benchmark of how we live our lives. We forgive as we've been forgiven. And then chapter 5 concludes the argument because that's where we're going now. Um, I'll read from verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's what we were dealing with last Sunday night. He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So remember, this series is all about hope. There is hope for the people that you care most about that they will see the fullness of God in their lives. There is hope that the people who are far from God will see him. There is hope that people so determined to continue in sin can change. Why? How can we hope in that? Because God has put you in their life. 
And as long as you are in their life, then there is hope for them because your life has a wonderful purpose. Your life has something to offer. God has not finished with you yet. Regardless of how old you are or how long you've been saved, there is something for you to do because the people around you have access to see and to witness of what God can do in a life. He's put you right in front of them. So, so we're dealing with an eternal perspective on this, okay? Um, and you might say, Jeff, look, <laughs> that, that's a wee bit too grand for me. That's a wee bit too much for me. My life isn't that great, Jeff. Uh, I don't have the ability to speak with kind of any eloquence. I, I, I'm inconsistent. I, I wouldn't be able to convince anyone. I said, well, remember, it's not about you. It's about him. Which is why we're told to imitate him. Imitate him. If, 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 people don't, if you don't want to see people to see you, then, then be more like him. And let them see God. Because that's the impact that God has on someone. As you begin to become like him, you begin to see things through his eyes, and it transforms you. Not because of rules, not because of regulations, not because the church has made you do something. No. But because of love, because of Christ in us. Salvation is about heart transformation not behavior modification. It's, it's, it's from the inside coming out, not the outside going in. So, so when we are wronged, we are quick to forgive. When we do something wrong, we are quick to seek forgiveness because we are people who have been marked by that forgiveness of God and by the grace of a loving God. So when we speak, we speak words that will build people up and, and encourage. We look to build bridges instead of walls. Because even Jesus was a friend to sinners. He spent time with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners and the, the lowest of the low in society. And he says, okay, my children, walk in love. In other words, our lives are characterized by the love that God has bestowed upon us to make us the children of God. This love should be evident in our lives in, in at least three ways at least three ways. And so here's a bit of a three-point health check for you this morning to see how we are progressing, to see how we are growing, and to see how we can grow uh, more healthy in our walk with God over the next uh, days, weeks, months, year. Um, and remember, the question is not, are you perfect in this, okay? Because just disclaimer here, none of us are going to be perfect in any of these attributes, Okay. That's not the point. The point isn't to say, look, aren't we rubbish at all this? The point is to say, here's something that we can strive for. Here's something that, that we can build towards. Here's something that, we can, that can, we can fix our eyes and work towards so that we can walk in love and walk worthy of a manner to which we've been called. So number one, let's grow in our love for the Savior, a love that will keep us holy. Um, the easy thing to quote here would be John 14. It says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But I'll, I'll be honest, I, I, sometimes I'm, I think people get quite uneasy with that verse. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments because it feels as if Jesus is saying, okay, love equals obedience or obedience equals love. You know, where it's like, well, if you love me, then you'll do as I say. And that's how I know you'll love me because you'll do what I tell you to do. So I think, well, that doesn't really feel very loving. But that's because we're, we're reading it wrong. We're, that, that, that's the wrong emphasis. It says, no, no. If you love me, 
if your heart is for me, if you deeply care about me and, and our relationship and our friendship, and our, then by default, as a consequence, as a result of that, you'll, you'll fall in the line. Nobody has to tell me not to cheat on my wife. Nobody has to tell me not, not to uh, spend time with, with, in, in compromising situations. Because I love my wife, it's going to naturally come out of it. It's not because it's rules and rules. It's because it comes from the heart. Love comes first. And so he just says, look, if you love me, you'll be able to keep the commandments. Not because you feel obliged to, but because it comes naturally with that loving relationship. Too often, I think, especially with children and young people, we, as churches, we, we want the obedience part to come first. Do this, do that. This is what a Christian says. This is what a Christian does. Do this, do this, do this. But we spend so little time by comparison exposing them to the wonder of the love of God. They see so little of us spending time loving God. And so is it any wonder they grow up thinking, well, it's just rules and regulations because we've never taken the time to step away from the obedience part to show them how to love God or how that we love God. For if they grow to love him, then parents, don't worry. They'll keep his commandments with the help of your example and your guidance. But, but here's the problem. How do we love God more than what we do right now? How do we actually grow in this area? Well, remember the story of the Pharisee who asked Jesus to come for dinner in, in Luke 7? He, he, he didn't wash Jesus' feet. He didn't greet him with a kiss. And there was kind of a wee bit of a frosty reception. Uh, and then suddenly, uh, there's this woman coming in off the street. Uh, she's a prostitute. And, and, and before anyone knows it, she's leaning over Jesus' feet. And, and she's weeping and, and, and washing his hair with, uh, with her tears. And wiping the tears with her hair and pouring perfume. And, and it's incredibly provocative. And the Pharisees all bent out of shame. says, if only he knew. If only Jesus knew what kind of a woman was touching him. Oh, that's disgusting. And then... Jesus catches him out and speaks directly to him and tells him a, a parable of a man who had two debtors. One man owed him, say, 5,000 pounds. Another one owed him a fiver. He forgives them both. And he says to the man, well, who do you think would be more thankful? Who do you think would be more appreciative? And the Pharisee says, well, I suppose the guy who canceled the larger debt, you know, he would be more thankful. He would be more loving for, for what's been done to him. And Jesus says in verse 43, yes, you, you've judged rightly. That, that's correct. And then these verses, he says, look, you know, your attitude's all been so different from hers, but she loves. She loves. Because she understands the forgiveness that she's received. She understands what's happening. Okay, so her sins are forgiven, not because she loves, but she loves because her sins have been forgiven. She understands what it means. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. How do we know they're forgiven? She loves. She loves. So where does this love come from? It comes from being stunned by the love of God. Right? The, the love that comes from realizing that we are, are 
unable to save ourselves. We are unable to rescue ourselves. We can't do anything about it. We're stuck in this rut and we're unfulfilled and we're empty and we're struggling. And, and then Christ, we're overwhelmed by the fact that Christ would come. He would die for us uh, and, 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 and on our behalf and he would rise again. And though we've no merit in, at all in ourselves or unworthiness in ourselves, that's what grips us. And we can't believe it. And then we begin just to begin to taste and see what it would mean to treasure Jesus. What it would mean just to delight in him, to be satisfied, as Matthew was saying, by the bread of life. So how do we love him more? How, how do we get to the place where walking in his way, the way of love comes more easily and more readily to us? It starts, it starts by fully understanding just how the grace of God has been lavished upon us. We are bigger sinners than we realize, but we are more loved than we could possibly imagine. It's incredible, and it stirs my heart to love him more and to hate my sin more for what it does because it hurts him and it pulls me away from him. And so as I see what has been done for me on the cross, I love him more. I hate my sin more because I see it as the poison that it really is. A love for the Savior that will keep us holy. Number two, are we growing in our love for the saints? Because this will keep us humble. 1 John 3, verse 16 starts, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, the people of the church. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the... How does God's love abide in him? Little children, I love that. Suggests that there's a bit of growing to do. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Maybe I should just leave those verses up there for a few minutes and let you think about them. Ephesians says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Are we growing in a love that says, I am prepared to go without so that my brother and sister in Christ can have? Paul tells the Ephesians their lives would be characterized by this new heart. Jesus says in John 13 that by this all people will know that you're my disciples by having love for one another. And the word love each time is agape, which is God's love. It's, it's a purposeful decision, purposeful love. I've decided that I am going to love. So regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you say, I have chosen, I have agaped to love you. It's loving like Jesus loved us. We've got to love in more than just words and thinking that not fighting with each other is the same as loving each other. Sometimes there are people who are really hard to love, not right? And sometimes you, you'll find these people in church and they just know how to push all of the buttons. Don't, don't look at them. Don't look at them. Eyes front. Just keep looking at me. Don't, don't look at them. I feel really conscious because you're all looking at me. I feel like I'm the person now. <laughs> Some people, it takes a huge amount of effort just to be calm around, right? And, and there's people... And they're just really hard whenever they leave. 
to not want to get your phone out and to text somebody or to ring somebody and says, you'll never guess what they said to me now. You'll never guess what they're up to now. And basically we're gossiping. Which we know we shouldn't do. But because they're so annoying, because they're so grating, because they're so frustrating, we, we fall into that trap and we do it. And we don't love them the way Jesus loves us. We kind of just go with the flow with the world. Some Christians can be hard to love. But that's when you need to remember that God is still helping them to grow as well. And it's really unfair to expect every other Christian to be perfect and have to put up with your imperfections if you're not prepared to put up with other people's imperfections. Sometimes there are personality clashes. Sometimes people great, and sometimes you're never going to be best friends with them. But we are called to choose to purpose in our hearts to love them. I was, thinking of, I was trying to think of an example. And okay, here we go. Uh, imagine a, a new parent with a newborn child, and the child is just not sleeping at all during the night. Um, we were speaking to a, a parent who was in that situation there during the week, and here was the phrase that they came out with. It's a good job they're cute. It's a good job they're cute. Because they were just at the end of their tether. Uh, Christmas Eve, they had 45 minutes sleep total. Yeah, it's a good job they're cute. What were they saying? They were saying, you are making it really hard to love you, but I still love you. And then I think in the same way, a babe in Christ, a baby in Christ, an immature believer, saved however many years, might cause you a few sleepless nights. Yeah? And I know there's Christians who sometimes do that. And you sometimes think to yourself, but Jeff, they are really hard to love, and they're not as cute as a baby. It's the same principle, though. I'm still going to love them. I'm still going to give my best. I'm going to still give my all for them. I love them. We are to love as Christ loved us. Our love for people is based on the kind of people that we are in Christ, not the kind of people that they are. So don't let other people start to define who you are in Christ. Don't let other people start defining your Christianity, your spirituality, your maturity, your walk with Christ. Okay? We have to love as God loved us and gave himself for us. So are we growing in our love for the Savior? Are we striving to be holy? Are we growing in our love for the saints? Are we striving to be humble and putting other people first? Let, let's close this off. Growing in our love for the sinner. When we learn to love the lost around us like Jesus does, that'll keep us hot. Keep a fire in our hearts. Keep a passion in our walk. We walk with a purpose as we walk in love. The Christian life is not always easy. In fact, it is rarely easy. Jesus never said it would be easy. What he said was that it would be worth it. And so we shouldn't take the hump whenever we realize that there's conflict in our lives. It's a spiritual battle. 
So how do you feel about the person who laughs at you because you're a Christian? How much does it hurt you that they could be lost forever? That's the contrast that we're shaping up here. What do we think about more here? Someone once said that the opposite to love is not hate. Uh, for they're both intense feelings for someone uh, and it causes someone to dominate our thoughts and our minds. It says the opposite to love and indeed the opposite to hate is not caring at all about someone, to be completely apathetic. It says that's the opposite of loving someone, to simply not care what goes on in the life. I could care less about what that person's doing. I could care less about what's happening. I wonder... When it comes to people that we know, are we completely apathetic about where they're going to spend eternity? It says, are we so loveless? Are we growing in our love for the lost? Is there a fire in your heart for what could happen if we don't reach them with the gospel? Or maybe, which sometimes happens, when we plateau, do we actually stop caring? Do we care less? Do we kind of just get into a rut and say, well, that's just them. They're never going to get saved, so I'm going to stop trying. I'm going to stop inviting them to church. I'm going to stop trying to bring up my faith. There's room to grow here, folks. But imagine what could happen if we did grow in this. Imagine what God could do with a church on fire for him. Living in the light of eternity. Because people aren't projects. They're not projects for us to work on and say, right, we'll give you attractive, invite you to church, right, I can ignore you now the rest of the week. But if you love them, you get involved in their life, you get engaged with who they are, and you care about their family, you care about their dad who's sick, or their mom who's in hospital, you care about the, their kids, and you care about their, their, their hobbies and their interests, you want to be part of their lives because you love them. And then in loving them, you're pointing them to Christ. Matthew 5, Jesus is speaking and says, you've heard it was said, you will love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And if you love those who love you, well, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think that's quite possibly the most radical command that God gives his people in all the scripture. Certainly one of the hardest ones. Raises a couple of questions. Like, did he really mean it? You know, I mean, how serious is this command? Is it something that, you know, is it not like one of those optional things where, where, you know, it depends on how much they persecute you or how much they curse you. And then there's kind of a cutoff point and then it's understandable just to stay clear of them. No, it's not optional. It comes directly from the mouth of our Savior and was recorded in the Bible for us to know and to do. So, so this is huge. If we love him, 
remember, will keep his commandments. So who is this pointing us towards? I mean, I don't think I've got any mortal enemies. I'm not like James Bond or Batman or anything. You know, I like to think I'm a fairly nice guy. I don't have sworn enemies. I mean, who'd want to be my enemy? Again, hands down, don't respond. Jesus told his disciples, look, they called me Beelzebub. You know, they likened me to the devil. They called me the devil. How much more are they going to malign you? We saw it with Lazarus. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, some people rejoiced and started to follow Christ. Some people, though, were in the same crowd, went to speak to the Pharisees, and they decided among themselves to kill and to plot against Jesus. They saw amazing things happen. They saw God do something incredible, and they chose to hate as a result, which means it doesn't matter what you do sometimes. People will take an instant dislike to you simply because you are a Christian. Paul said to Timothy that those who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. And so if you don't have enemies, maybe your godliness is in question. (laughs) Jesus said, woe unto you if everyone speaks well of you. It's an interesting one, isn't it? So how do we move to a place where we can bless people who deliberately and purposefully want to undermine us simply because we're a Christian. They don't want to listen to us because we're a Christian. They don't want to respect us because we're a Christian. They don't want to give us any time of day or they want to undermine us simply because we are a Christian. And I don't mean how can we just say nice things about them or how can we simply refrain from returning evil for evil but to genuinely love them and to seek God move in their lives and to pray for their lives to be blessed, that their business will prosper, that that their family will be successful. Well, I suppose the first point is to don't get dragged down to their level. You know, don't return evil for evil. Don't respond to their pettiness or their passive-aggressive emails with eye-rolling when they walk into the room. Oh, here they are again. Here we go. I'm going to just pretend to be busy. I'm just going to ignore them. That's not love. Um, I think it's, it's, it's like we never leave being sort of that teenage girl. You know, it's kind of like, you know, sort of going, hi. Oh, my gosh. Did you see what they were wearing? Uh, uncanny, so it was all right. Uncanny. But that's what happens. Oh, nice. Hi. Mm. Uh. what happens. That's not love. We are to love as we have been loved by God, which means we will love totally. We will love completely. We will help them, not because we think that they're going to help us, because we know that they'll probably not help us. In fact, they'll trip us up if they got the chance, but we're still going to go help them because we're the kind of people who are shaped and marked by God's love. It's because of who we are and who we are in Christ that defines what we're going to do. Not who they are. Not who they are. Loving your enemy is to be an illustration to the world 
that Jesus is our satisfaction. Again, what Matthew was talking about. I don't need money. I don't need security. I don't need popularity. I don't need all any of these worldly things because it is Jesus who's my security. It's Jesus who's my greatest treasure. It's Jesus who satisfies. It's Jesus who's all sufficient. So I don't care about your attitude. I don't care about what you're going to do to me. I don't care what you're going to say to me because this is who I am in Christ and this is how Christ has just brought me into live, to living. I am marked by love, and so this is who I am. And the world will see the contrast in how we go about our lives. That's our response. That's our response, and you'll know if you need to work on this, because at the minute you'll be thinking about that person who really grinds your gears and really frustrates you, and you'll be thinking of how you can weasel out of having to do it. All right? In the minute, some of you are doing it. So, night, Jeff, but you see, here's what they did or here's what's going on, or here's what's happening, you see. And so I thought, no, no, no. I don't see any clauses in the Scripture behind me. I don't see any wee asterisk saying, you know, except if they take your promotion, except if they divorce you, except if they make it awkward in school. It's not there. If your default position is not to run towards people who hate Christ in us, and you'd rather weasel out of it on a technicality, is it maybe because you feel like they're going to win? Is it maybe because you feel like they're going to get away with it? And that, that we don't like that? Because let's be honest, as Christians, we're supposed to love justice. We're supposed to love justice and we're supposed to fight for, for, for against what's going wrong. And we're supposed to care deeply about what's going on in people's lives. And so when things are unjust, it does frustrate us. And so does it, do we start think, well, I can't let that happen. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 19, Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul reminds us, look, nobody's going to get away with their injustice. Nobody's going to get away with their sin against you, okay? Because either it will be punished uh, by being administered on, on, on the cross of Jesus Christ, or in eternity in hell. So you can't improve in either of those scenarios. Either it's completely dealt with and forgiven on the cross, or it takes them to hell. So whatever way you're wanting to think about this, you can't improve on either of those scenarios. So leave it to God. And when we do that, it leaves us to free us and give us over to love, knowing that the Lord's going to sort out all the injustices. He says, well, they're not getting away with that. So I, I, I'm fine with it. Because I know the Lord saw it. Our call as Christians is to walk in love. We care about the wrongs of this world. We care about the widow and the orphan. We care about the sex slave and the lonely. We care about it all. It burdens us and it hurts us to think about the suffering of people. But how much more should it burden us their eternal suffering? So don't worry about vengeance. Psalm 37 tells us that don't worry about the people who are doing wrong. 
verse 3 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. That's how we overcome evil, not by evil, but by doing good. That's how we love our enemies. Our job is not to hate them. Our job is not to call damnation on them. Our job is not to picket them and protest against them. Our job is to evangelize them, to go to them, to love them, to win them. That's our call. And we leave the judgment to God. And we focus on our call to go into the world and to make disciples and to walk in love. So are we growing in this, folks? None of us have made it in any of the categories. I know. There is still more growing to do. But oh, that we may desire to walk in love. And my primary concern as the pastor of this church is not how much Hebrew or Greek you know. It's not how much you attend. My primary concern is that the gospel of Christ has taken hold of your life and that you're growing up healthily in your walk with God into the image and the likeness of the one who saved us. That's my primary concern. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And how thrilling the hope could be of what God could do through us this coming year. Wouldn't it be exciting that all of Newton Arge and down the peninsula and everyone else saw in us individually and us collectively a church growing in love for the Savior, for the saint, and for the sinner. What an impact we can make. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Um, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we realize that we have still much more growing up to do. Lord, that so often we kind of still think like everyone else thinks. And we still have parts of our life that we need to hand over to you. Because we're not acting like you, we're not imitating you at all. Lord, may we, may you appear bigger to us than you've ever done this morning. Lord, may we be in awe of you and who you are and what you've done. Lord, that we be overwhelmed by your love for us and in turn be overwhelmed by a love for you. Lord, may we care deeply about our brothers and sisters around us, may it passionately impact us, Lord. Lord, if one part of the body is sick, then we all feel it. Lord, may we feel it this morning. And Lord, for those who have no interest in the things of God, for those in our families, in our workplaces, the people who we, we socialize with, play football with, whatever, Lord, I pray, may we love them even whenever they make fun of our faith, even whenever they make it hard maybe to speak up, Lord, may we never forget of the eternal realities of this spiritual battle.
And so, Lord, we pray. Help us to walk in love. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. I'm going to ask our musicians to come up again, and uh, then we'll go into our time of communion. Um, just as we go into our time of communion, I want to take you back about 12, 15 years, and I'm going to tell you a story about David and Victoria Beckham. Now, they were, uh, Posh and Bex were traveling back from Heathrow Airport uh, to central London in a taxi, and the uh, taxi driver was very impressed at his high celebrity uh, passenger. He says, so, so where have you been? Uh, we're just back from New York, said David. Uh, we saw a show, did some shopping, um, heard an amazing lecture. 
caution backs at a lecture. This is weird, said the, th the taxi driver. So, well, did you enjoy the lecture, David? David says, it was incredible. It was really, really interesting. He says, oh, what was the name of the speaker? Oh, I can't remember. Um, name some of the big railway stations.